We can find a way. Idil Elverish presents. In today's program, my guest is Jack Cambria, who is a retired member of the New York City Police Department and who has been a negotiator and a trainer of negotiation in police forces. Welcome back to another program of We Can Find a Way, a podcast about conflict resolution. My name is Idil Elberish. In this episode of We Can Find a Way, my guest is Jack Cambria, who will be talking about hostage negotiation in the police force. Jack is a retired member of the New York City Police Department. He has served in many capacities, including in the rescue, tactical, and counterterrorism services to the city of New York. Consequently, he has experience in many high-profile cases, such as both World Trade Center disasters, plane crashes, and a variety of hostage and barricade situations, particularly violent and suicidal individuals. He is also a trainer of police officers from many countries. He and I discuss what hostage negotiation is, why such a service was needed at the first place in a police force, the four things that occur when people try to make decisions under stress, and the time and encouragement provided by negotiators to help hostage takers to make the right decision by getting rid of that stress. What kind of training is provided to police officers interested in negotiation? and statistical facts about hostage negotiation. Let's now move to the interview that we conducted with Jack on 25th of April, 2021. Jack, please tell me what is hostage negotiation and why do we need it? Well, the uh, hostage negotiation is uh, an alternative form to policing where we try to resolve crisis uh, incidents with our words first, where before and hopefully a tactical intervention might not become necessary. As we have learned in police work, uh, every time the police officers have to go through a, a door, a doorway of an apartment, of a home, in a tactical situation, maybe on an arrest warrant, it's a very dangerous situation because we're entering into a hostile environment. So the preferred method is, of course, to talk and try to get that individual to agree and come on out before we have to maybe go inside. Basically, what you're saying is it's to protect the police officers first. All parties concerned. And that's one of the things that I used to talk to our tactical team about. My background is I retired just five years ago from the New York City Police Department after 34 years of service. Wow. And within those 34 years, I spent 16 with the New York City Police Department's tactical team. We call it emergency service. Some of you might know it as the SWAT team. My last 14 years, I was the commander of the hostage negotiation team. I know both sides of the equation, tactical and the negotiation side of it. One of the things that I do is to try to keep police officers safe by, if I am successful in my negotiation attempt and strategy, where that individual comes out, so now those tactical officers do not have to go through that door. So yeah, I keep them safe, but in, in the same process, I also keep, hopefully, the people inside the hostage takers and the hostages safe as well. Tell us a little bit more about this tactical team, because that sounds like a military term. Sure, the tactical team might be considered I don't know, as the Marines of the police department. So when all else fails, the tactical team must come in and maintain order. Through force. Yeah, the important word here is uh, necessary, when and only when necessary. They'll come in as a final option. And on the other side of it, uh, also, the deal is you must have a strong tactical presence in place in order for negotiators 
to be effective. It's a motivator. So, for example, I can say to that hostage taker, listen, if you don't want to talk to me, then you're going to have to talk to them. Uh, they'll look out, they'll see the machine guns and the heavy ballistic vests, the helmets, the battering rams, and more likely than not, they'll come out, they'll turn around and say, wait, I prefer to talk to you. And also, they must be in place in case the incident starts going very badly and they start shooting or even killing hostages. Right, but you can't resort to that immediately. Unless as soon as we arrive, they're shooting people, then there's no negotiations to be had at that point. Under normal circumstances, there's a, a process. We'll start the process of trying to negotiate first. So you have stated that this is an alternative form of policing, and we know that law enforcement is about authority, force, where necessary, as you have indicated. So how did this less confrontational style of policing become so prevalent in police forces? And do we see a divide between hardliners or tactical people versus the soft or negotiators? So the concept of hostage negotiation was founded right here in New York City back in 1973 uh, after a series of events. And the one that your audience may remember most was the Munich Olympic Massacre, August of 1972. And just a quick recap of that. That was a group of uh, Palestinian terrorists entered into the dormitories housing the Israeli athletes and coaches. And the end result of that was 11 Israeli athletes and coaches were killed, a police officer and five of those Palestinian terrorists in the rescue attempt. What happened in New York City, we had a um, police chief who was of the Jewish faith, and he was watching these events as they were unfolding very closely, and he became concerned that that can very easily happen in New York City. We have a very large Jewish population. So he approached the police commissioner at the time and said, we should have detectives trained as hostage negotiators in order to deal with this type of situation if it should occur. The commissioner agreed with that way of thinking, and thus the hostage negotiation team was born. As a result of the concepts that were developed here, the model, many of the law enforcement agencies across the United States first, and then the FBI as well, and then other countries also established hostage negotiation teams using the model of the New York City Police Department. So we have some bragging rights, and that includes uh, Turkey. Turkish National Police have a hostage negotiation team. There was a uh, takeover in a courthouse. I think a, a prosecutor was being held hostage. Yes. That's what the yes. story. Yeah, and the negotiators came in. But n- not with success, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's the reality of police work. We go in there and we try our very best, like the surgeon goes into an operating room, try their very best, but sometimes not always successful. I know, for instance, the U.S. didn't come to this point also very easily. In preparation of this interview, I've been reading this book by Gary. Bozna? Yes, Stalling for Time, where he talks about how the FBI took it on and how the incident in Waco in Texas, there was all these quarrels and everything. And that's why I was asking, is this now the really agreed course of action? When the team was first established, again, back in 1973, we had those hotliners who negotiations with perpetrators. We don't do that. But uh, so we don't talk to terrorists. <laughs> yeah. So prior to 1973, police agencies, not only in the United States, but of course the world, would give a hostage taker a set amount of time to surrender. Right. And if they did not, then they would be met with tactical force. Right. And of course, we already established the problem with that, that people are getting injured and killed as a result. Right. So the negotiations uh, team, it's a different approach, and it tries to manage people's emotions by bringing it down and then putting them in a more rational state of mind where they can make more proper decisions. Whenever we make a decision in high emotion, of course, it's 
always a bad decision, or mostly. Can you therefore give us some examples of how you use some of the principles of conflict resolution in a hostage negotiation setting? I'll tell you this, you know, emotions do have a shelf life. And you know this, when people are angry, you've been angry at one point in the time, myself as well, all of us have been angry at one point in time, it dissipates. You might uh, you know, uh, say, okay, forget about it, or you'll try to resolve it in another way. We have to have exercise great patience. We use active listening skills. Uh, one of those active listening skills is called emotional labeling. And we try to identify the emotion that we are seeing that is being demonstrated by that individual. And we'll confront them with that softly. Ma'am, Miguel, you seem very upset today. What's the matter? And probably initially when you're angry, uh, you're going to give me a response. Well, you're damn right, I'm upset. But that's okay because I just got you to agree with me. And then I will continue that further. And by allowing you uh, the time to talk about it, emotions will start coming down. It's like I use the analogy of the tea kettle. You want to boil some water for a cup of tea. Pressure builds up and there's a little relief valve where the steam comes out, right? Well, if you were to clog up that little relief valve, put a little cork in it, for example. If, as the pressure was building up and finally that tea kettle would explode. So it's the same with people. When, by allowing them to speak, getting it out of that little relief valve, emotions are starting to dissipate. And it's a process. Some people can resolve a conflict, a crisis, uh, a lot sooner than someone else. And I will also say for some people, that they can never get over it. But mostly, we get people to talk about it, get them back to our normal functioning level by bringing their emotions down. So whenever emotions are up, rationality levels are down. So we have to try to reverse that by bringing emotion down and bringing rationality up, where we can get to a point where they will now accept maybe options that we are offering to them. So how long does that take? The FBI has a national database that says the average hostage situation is about four hours, two to four hours, but mostly uh, four hours. But then, um, you know, I've been on a job myself that lasted 50 hours. Individual was diagnosed as having bipolar disorder, and he was in his manic stage for some 50 hours. At that point, we went through 17 different negotiators. I was with the tactical team at the time. So it runs the gamut. People must be allowed the time to walk through their emotions. You can't rush the process because if you push too hard for a quick resolve, then people will push back just as hard. Saying, no, right. I'm not ready yet. Right. And then they might hurt the hostages, etc. Yeah. Or themselves. Uh, you know. So what is the curriculum of a typical hostage negotiation course? Well, you know, there's two phases of it. There's a, a basic course, and that's a 40-hour course. That's for the brand new negotiator hasn't really had any, doesn't have much information about what it means to be a negotiator. And then once they graduate from that, as they get some experience in the field, they'll come back for a more advanced class, which is also a 40-hour course. So how often do these type of cases occur? Across the country, the average hostage negotiation team handles about maybe 10 to 12 hostage situations a year. In New York City, we were handling about 45 assignments per month, but also granted the population of New York City is eight and a half million people. Add to that another 4 million people coming to the city every single day for work, for business, vacation, going to the theater. So right. on average, we're about 12 and a half million people pass through the city every single day. So that would account for that number, about 45 assignments per month. And they make up not only hostage situations, which are mostly domestic in nature. But then we have a barricaded situations where an individual is by themselves in their home, their apartment. Two categories of, of barricaded situations. The first one is the barricaded perpetrator that has to be arrested. There's a warrant for his arrest or her arrest. The detective's not going to do it. They say, I'm not coming out. I'm not going back to jail. I'm going to shoot it out with the police before I come out. 
after these negotiators. Okay, we're going to talk to you. The second category of barricade are the mostly disturbed or the mentally ill, who are now, due to some life factors, uh, are acting out in a manner which now requires police intervention. And then the third category of response we have is the suicidal jumper. That could be someone finds themselves in a matter of, uh, again, to be on top of the Brooklyn Bridge. I cannot tell you how many times you've been on top of the Brooklyn Bridge on the rooftop of the building. It seems to me that it also requires a certain mental health awareness on behalf of the police officers or people who are spotting the situation. Yeah, and that's part of the training. So there is a block of instruction about an overview of mental health issues that police officers most likely come into contact with in their work. Bipolar disorder, about the schizophrenia, depression, we talk about suicide, what people might respond to in suicide, and it's a process in time. And it's about confronting it. There's usually three responses to stress. Three Fs. The three Fs, yeah. The first response is to fight. And that could be either a physical fight or it could be just merely an argument between two parties. The second one is to flight. flight. I don't want to deal with you anymore, deal. I'm out of here. I remove myself. And then the third response is to freeze. What did he say? I liken that to the equation of the, the deer in the headlights. They come out onto the roadway at nighttime. There's a car coming after they see the headlights and they freeze. They don't know how to respond. Right. Those are three largely unproductive responses to stress. If I can suggest to the audience one more F. And that is to face, confront the stress and say, deal, you seem upset with me today. I'm sorry, please tell me why you're upset. First of all, it's going to validate what you might be feeling and you will then tell me. And then it will give me the opportunity to explain, oh my gosh, no wonder why you're upset. Please allow me to explain myself, why I said what I said, or why I did what I did. Mm -hmm. And it'll give us a chance to uh, kind of reconcile our relationship. So you're basically teaching future hostage negotiators mental health issues, conflict issues, the emotional responses that people develop in a crisis situation like fight, flight or freeze. And I guess basics of negotiation as well. Uh, one of the core principles, I guess, you exercise is you never give something away without getting anything in return. That's one school of thought. And I respect, of course, negotiators that do it that way. I teach the deal that it's okay to give before mm -hmm. getting. If you, you're hungry, we've been here for a long time, you want some McDonald's, you want some pizza, you want some water in there, I'll get you what you want. My way of thinking is going to be reciprocal in time. So what I'm doing by giving before getting, I'm building collateral because at one point I'm going to look to make a withdrawal. This is what I do for you over time. I gave you food, I gave you water, I gave you a cigarette, I gave you what you wanted of many things that you had asked for. Now, what are you going to do for me? And that's how the deal works. It's about negotiating. I can always stop giving if, if it continues on. Mostly it's people feel that they have to reciprocate. I gave it to you, so okay, let me give you something also. So what is the emotional world of a hostage taker? You have mentioned anger. We also know some people are very, very calculating and it's not only a, just an emergency situation or a situation that has just developed. It can be also something with a clear goal in mind. So please tell us more. Oftentimes, hostage takers uh, get themselves involved with an unplanned event. They go to a bank. They want to rob a bank because they need money. Uh, someone presses that silent alarm, the teller, for example, before they know what the police are out front of the bank. They weren't planning on taking hostages, but now they're in that situation to try to bargain them way themselves out of that situation. So the one thing that, that police hostage negotiators have on their side of it uh, as an advantage is that collectively we have 
great experience base. We've done this many times before. Whereas that first time hostage taker has no experience base in this at all. They're going to have concerns that we can help them with. And we're going to get them through that by being credible, professional, and getting them through that situation. And we tell them that. So listen, maybe you've never done this before. And we understand you're in a situation that you have no experience basing. But let me tell you, I've been doing this for many years. And I've been in this situation many, many times before. And I'm going to get you out of it safely. So we, we become that, that individual's credibility base, if you will, that we're going to get them out of there safely. And they get that over time. They will come out of that bank at one point or another, hopefully in that safe fashion. They are taken by surprise by their own actions even. Mostly, yes. Even with the domestic-based type of hostage situation, you know, husband and wife, they get into a big dispute in the, in the house. Maybe the, uh, the husband is cheating on the wife or vice versa, and they confront each other. Maybe there's weapons involved. Maybe there's alcohol involved. Could be children involved as hostages, absolutely. So we're going to come in there and we're going to find out as much information as we can. One of the problems that the negotiators have, whenever we arrive on the scene of an incident, you can liken that to entering into the middle of a movie. You're running late uh, for the movie, uh, you get in your car, you have some traffic, you get to the theater, you can't find a parking spot right away. And when you get in, the movie's already going off about 20 minutes. And you have Superman lying on the ground when you enter the theater. Oh my gosh! How did Superman get on the ground? Well, you don't know because you got there late. Then you have to figure it out. Same thing when entering into an incident as a police, as a negotiator. We don't know how this whole drama that's unfolding before us began. So we have to start figuring that out. And part of a, a hostage negotiation team structure, we have an intelligence officer. And that's his or her job to find that out. And they will do that by interviewing friends, neighbors, family, acquaintances that can tell us something about what's going on. The person that called the emergency number in the United States is 911. Mm-hmm. But we will um, try to figure that out and then start developing our strategy in order to deal with that situation. There are no two strategies that are exactly alike because no two problems are exactly alike. Right. So each strategy is really tailor-made specifically for that individual incident that's going mm-hmm. on. So that person probably hasn't planned to take any hostages. It just turned out that way. So what you have to deal in terms of emotion is totally different than a carefully crafted or planned to lay siege to a, say, church or a conference center or whatever, or another situation that has just occurred because you have a mental issue is again different. So That's what I understand from what you're describing, actually. And it can be a planned event. Terrorism is the perfect example of that. That's planned in advance. And they want to just purely terrorize everyone that's watching that. And they'll take hostages and they'll even kill hostages. Jihadi John, who is cutting people's heads off on camera. It's designed to just purely terrorize. So how do you negotiate that kind of situation? Probably what we're trying to do in that type of situation is just to buy time. Stalling for time. For time. Yeah, there you go. Gary Nosen, my friend. Just stalling for time. And maybe hopefully that the tactical team might be able to set up. So there's a, there's a lot of different strategies that we might right. try to probably know what the end result will be with terrorism. We'll work hard to fight against that. So any statistical facts about hostage negotiation? Well, the majority of situations take place on between the hours of four in the afternoon till midnight. As per the FBI's database, it's called HOBAS, H-O-B-A-S. So they have some statistics there. The number one day that hostage situations occur is on a Monday. Why Monday? I don't know. Maybe uh, people are coming off a, a weekend. They're stressed. They have to go back to work. They act out. 
Maybe they don't have a job. They see the rest of the world around them. Their friends, colleagues going to work. I have no idea why. Before talking to you, I was doing some research on the home front, and I realized apparently in Istanbul now, the hostage negotiation team is very much dealing with a lot of foreigners. That was a very surprising information for me. Well, you know, the local people here in New York are mostly foreigners. And New York City is a a series of neighborhoods. And each neighborhood has its own cultural diversity attached to it. So we are conditioned to dealing with all these different cultural diverse issues that come along. Your negotiation team should be a makeup of these diverse groups. New York City Police Department, we have over 36,000 uniformed members. And within that 36,000, we have probably every religion and culture. So what I tried to do, when I was doing it, I had 125 negotiators. I would select people who had different ethnic backgrounds, religions. But if I had a situation that required some kind of specialized negotiation, I would have those resources. And if there was nobody on the hostage team that I had that particular background, somebody in the NYPD, New York City Police Department, did have that, you know, checking without databases. And I would get to the, uh, them to the scene, and even though they were not a trained negotiator, I would coach them uh, what we wanted them to do. And then they could talk about their own ethnic backgrounds and diversity and try to establish a rapport with that individual. And if we can develop a rapport, that will ultimately lead to trust and hopefully then they will abandon their ideas and come out to us. What qualities should a good hostage negotiator have? I'm assuming they're all policemen. Correct. I think the very first thing is they have to care enough to want to do this work. It's a volunteer assignment, so they get no extra pay to do this. So the criteria I put in place was that the candidate that was applying for the team had to have at least 12 years experience. It's going to give that candidate a very strong foundation in policing. Right. So they know what people might respond to who are in crisis by the things they said to them in the past, but what people might respond to. Right. De-escalate, escalate. This works. That doesn't kind of, right? Yeah. So intuitively, you understand it. The second reason is that with 12 years, it's put you in a certain age category, probably around 35 years or so, give or take a little bit. At 35 years, what it means to experience the emotion of love, to know what it means to have been hurt in love. Right. To know what it means to know success, and perhaps most importantly, to know what it means to know failure. You must know failure in order to know success. And the greater the failure you experience, the greater the life lesson you've also experienced, and you can move on to better things. So we all know adversity in our lives, and that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the week of training, because they know that being they too have had adversity in their life, they can now respond to a subject who's in crisis with more compassion empathy. Right. That's the whole overview of what it takes to become a negotiator. What is the gender divide in the negotiation team? For my 125 negotiators, I had about 25 female, about 100 mm-hmm. male. It's more, more male dominated, I would say. And this is just a guess. It's a 60, 40, 65, mm-hmm. 35. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me. Not only that, but also doing this in your busy schedule on a Sunday. I appreciate your candid responses. Thank you so much, Dear, for inviting me to do this. Great opportunity for me. And let's say hello to all your audience. Thank you so much, Dear. In today's to program, my guest was Jack Cumbria. He told us how the idea of negotiation in the police force came about after the Israeli athletes were killed in the Munich Olympics in the 1970s. Starting from that incident, many police forces seem to have established this force to respond to hostage incidents where people are under stress and cannot make rational decisions about their safety as well as the 
safety of hostages and the police officers engaged in the situation. It is interesting to know that many police forces discovered that hostage takers did not always intend to take hostages, but found themselves in that situation nevertheless. So we see the benefits of that kind of force in protecting human life, not only of hostages, but also police officers and the hostage takers. I hope you enjoyed the program. I will upload a picture of Jack in the Instagram account of We Can Find A Way. I will share some excerpts from the program in stories too. Lastly, I would like to close by thanking musician Imre Hadi and artist Seren Göktan, who allowed me to use their materials in this podcast. I thank Efsane Shimal Yalçın for her translation. Thank you and see you in the next program. We can find a way. Idil Elberich presented. 